great introduction to Deuteronomy chapter 8, the purpose of the wandering. So turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 8. If you don't own a Bible, raise your hand. Barry will bring you one. If you, if you don't have a Bible with you, raise your hand. Barry bring you one. If you don't own a Bible, keep it. They're wonderful Bibles, by the way. So I want to ask you to get this going. Think about this. We will talk about it in the middle of the message. But think about this. What is the difference in your mind between being punished and being disciplined. Think about that. We'll we'll come back to it. The difference between punished and being disciplined. Because we're going to read today about how God disciplines Israel. Then towards the end of the message, we'll look in the New Testament how God disciplines us. And what's the difference between his discipline and his punishment? So we'll come back to that. What I'm going to do is we're in Deuteronomy chapter 8, and there's 20 verses in this passage. And I'm going to drop into three or four sections to talk about. But first, I want to read the whole thing to you so you get the big picture. Okay, you with me? So if you have a Bible, open to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the Old Testament. And we will um, read 20 verses together. I'll read them. You follow along. Chapter 8, verse 1. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply... And go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Stop there. I forgot to tell you. In case you don't know, the 40 years of wandering the first generation has gone by. Deuteronomy, the word Deuteronomy means second law. God is giving the law a second time to the second generation. So this is the children of the people who came out of Egypt. All the others died in the wilderness because of their unfaithfulness, except except for Jacob and Caleb. And um, so, thank you, Joshua and Caleb. Appreciate that, Frank. Verse 3, and he humbled you. And let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you. Your foot did not swell these 40 years. Know that in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So you shall keep his commandments You shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs flowing out in the valleys and the hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vine and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land of which you will eat bread without scarcity in which you will lack nothing. A land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. And you shall eat and be full and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them and when you're Herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied. Then then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. Who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water. Who brought you water out of the flinty rock 
who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand has gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he, it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, you shall perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. Father, guide us through your word and help us to grasp your character that comes from this passage and maybe some of our propensities to turn away from you. And what the solution is to that, what your solution is, how you have provided for us through the cross. So guide us in your word today. In Christ's name we thank you. Amen. Amen. So often people do this. It's a common thing that people in general say, and I hear it from Christians also. Well, the God of the Old Testament, he was kind of mean. But the God of the New Testament is nice. And, and we can see where that comes from because much of the Old Testament is around periods of Israel's deep rebellion. And, and sometimes it skips hundreds of years of God's patience and kindness before he brings discipline to them. What I want you to remember is the God of the New Testament, there's only one God. And Hebrews tells us he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's the same God. And he's been merciful the whole time. His grace is the basis of salvation the whole time. So we've we got to keep that big picture in mind as we look at passages like this. We say, well, I'm glad God, glad God doesn't do that today. It's the same God. You with me on this? Okay. So if you want to pull out your insert in your bulletin, the first thing, the, 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 Brand, Brandon put this series together for us, and he, he titled this section, The Purpose, God's Purpose for the Wilderness Wanderings. And so the first purpose was a testing that produced humility. A testing that produced humility. So I'm going to read to you chapter 8, 1 through 4 again, and, and we'll tear it apart a little bit. So it says this. The whole commandment that I command you today, shall, you shall be careful to do. That, here's why you should be careful. That you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. So stop there for a moment. That, that phrase, be careful to do... It is a Hebrew word called shamar. It occurs about 70-something times um, in, in the book of Deuteronomy alone. It is a book that is a word that is intense. It, it can mean to, you know, pay, pay very close attention. Be diligent about this. Because this is putting, this is putting deep focus on something God said, not just a, 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 a glancing thought to it. So be careful to do that you may live and multiply Verse 2, and you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God, or as we do here, we put the Hebrew word in there, Yahweh your God, has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you, and look at this, he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord, mouth of Yahweh. Clothing 
Your clothing did not wear out, and your foot did not swell these 40 years. So God's provision in their lives, taking care of them, same time, humbling them. And that one phrase there, let you hunger, in verse 3, and fed you with manna. We already just read a minute ago the whole passage where he described this incredible land God is bringing them into. This incredible, you know, that flows with water everywhere. Creeks and brooks and the, and the fields will be produced things and the cattle will produce. Everything you need and more will be yours there. But during the wilderness, it was scant. Because I wanted to humble you. God's goal is to humble us. And that's not painless. So why, why does he need to humble us? What's the obvious answer? Why does God need to humble us? Because by our sin, we are naturally prideful. It's just, it's just part of being human. Pride, I'll read you 1 Peter in a moment. But in this context, here's what one scholar says the definition is in this context. To be humbled is to be led to an awareness of our own meager resources and consequently led into a trustful dependence on the God whose resources are endless. All through this passage, you see how, be careful that you don't think you did all this. That's our tendency. And we'll come back to that in a moment. But God says, I'm, I'm, I let you be hungry to humble you. And that seems harsh, doesn't it? It seems harsh. Because sometimes we have this, we take what's true about God, God wants your good. Always wants your good. That's true, is it not? But sometimes to bring that good about, you have to go through trials. And, and the end result will be good. We'll see that in a moment. But sometimes you think, God, this is capricious. This seems no purpose to this. You're just bringing pain for no good reason. And what we have to realize is everything that comes into our life, and you know my illustration, I use it all the time, that I'm in God's hands. Nothing comes into my life that doesn't go through his hands first. So I can trust him, though I don't understand. That is bedrock to my walk with our God. I don't like these circumstances, God. They sometimes really stink. And I would do it different if I was you. That's where pride can jump in. There's a passage there that I'm not going to deal with today. He made you hunger that you might know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of Yahweh. That actually is quoted in Matthew chapter 4 when Jesus is tempted in the wilderness. In fact, three times Satan tempts Jesus in three different ways, and three times Jesus quotes scripture to him, all from the book of Deuteronomy. This passage in Deuteronomy 8 and two times from Deuteronomy 6. Next week is Brandon's sermon on that. So I don't want to steal his thunder. But the purpose of those wanderings and that hunger was to remind you there's something more important than the food you eat. And it's what God says to you. The word of God. Let's look at a larger biblical context now for, for humility. Definition, Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. So, so that, that scholar had said that in that particular context is God has all resources, humbles us to show us not to depend on our own means, but to trust him who has all things. But a larger context, Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4, Paul says this, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. 
But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Very careful wording. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. In our world today, it's been going on for generations since I was a teenager, is the concept of self-esteem. Is you need to understand how important you are. And, and that, that, you know, you're very important, so have self-esteem, that you, you, you rise up with everyone else. It's not denying that. It's not saying think low of yourself, oh, you're just a loser. It's saying, though you grasp you're an image bearer of God, that you're a child of God, consider others as more important than you. That's true humility. That's not, that's not a a lack of self-esteem, that is a true esteem of who you are, that my true value comes from God. And he loves me enough to send his son to die for me. Now he wants me to serve you. So I'll put your needs ahead of mine. I'll consider you more important than myself because that's what Jesus did. The passage in Philippians from chapter 5 or chapter 2, verse 5 to 11 does just that. Christ did this for us. So humility is God's goal. Listen to 1 Peter 5. Verse 5. Clothe yourself, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that the proper time he may exalt you. Beautiful imagery. I humble myself under the mighty hand of God. So at some time, he's going to go like this, and he's going to exalt me in his purpose and plans. Verse 7, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Now, I want you to do this. In, in the Greek language, the word casting your cares is, is what's called a subordinate participle. Isn't that exciting? <laughs> what it's doing is it's telling you how to humble yourself. So that the New English translation and a couple other translations say, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and he will exalt you. And you do this by casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And I never really caught this before, but Teresa, Teresa um, reads John Piper's stuff on, online, these devotionals that come from John Piper every day. And she was reading this passage and, and she was saying, huh, not casting your cares on God is to be proud. And I'm going, I'm not sure I agree with that. But the more I thought about it, it was true. I can handle my problems, God. I don't need you. That, that would be the reason not to cast my cares upon him. Either that or a false belief of who he is that he doesn't care. But in this passage, we humble ourselves by taking all my anxieties, all of the weight that is upon me that I can't control, and I say, God, they're yours because I have no ability to deal with them. That's humility, and he will exalt you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. By the way, finish this phrase for me. Pride comes before the And so the original fall was in the garden where Adam and Eve said, not God's way, not your will be done, but that's pride. And the devil won that day. So this is an, it infers that passage. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of suffering 
Same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. The cure to the devil having a place in your life is humility. He hates it. In fact, most of the world hates the word. But it's a virtue of Christ. So, one reason for the wilderness wanderings is to humble Israel. And God's still doing it to us today. His goal is to exalt us. But the path to exaltation is through humility. If humility is a word you don't want to apply to your life because it says humble yourself, then that future exaltation that God has for us won't happen. I can't say I fully understand what and when all that is, whether it's this life or the next, certainly the next. But let's remember, humility is our friend. So number two, number second reason why God took them into the wilderness, because God disciplines those he loves. But look, for a reason. Let's come back to the difference between discipline and, and, and punishment. Now, my generation, we were spanked. But... Our, <laughs> Are you talking about you were glad I was spanked? Is that why you're clapping? <laughs> and, and we had different terminology for it. I go back to school on Monday. Man, did I get a whipping this weekend. My parents beat me this weekend. Now, I didn't really mean that. But that's the terminology we used. Got a whipping. I was beaten. Um, but so what is the difference between being punished and disciplined? If I use the word whipping and beaten, it's just a, it was the vernacular of the day. But what is the difference between punishment and discipline? Because they can look the same, possibly. What's the difference in the person administering them? Louder. Attached. And punishment is an end in itself. Okay, think about that. I mean, and I don't want to get too much into our penal system today, but when we send someone to prison, it's not, well, we're disciplining you so you become a nice guy. No, we're punishing you because you did stupid things. They may call it correctional center, but I don't think it's working real well. So, so he's right. A punishment is you did wrong and I'm going to make you pay. I'm going to make you hurt for an end in itself. Discipline is the idea of bringing some pain into your life to produce something good. And we'll see Hebrews 12 in a moment. We'll look at this. But it's what God did to Israel, and it does three things in my notes, you'll see it. To produce obedience and devotion to Yahweh. Listen to verses 5 and 6 of Deuteronomy 8. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, Yahweh your God disciplines you. So, here's the reason. You shall keep the commandments of Yahweh your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. The suggestion would be, the implication is, I wouldn't naturally do that. I'm real excited about God bringing his blessings to my life. Are you? But sometimes those blessings can't be received or enjoyed until there's an understanding of my sin and I have to be obedient and fear him. And we don't like this word fear God. Because we think of this idea of cowering behind a rock because God's out to get me and he's capricious and unpredictable and he just really wants to slap me into next week. Which is what my dad used to say to me. (laughs) Do you want to wake up next week? Especially if I disrespected my mother. Um, That's not who our God is. 
Our fathers did it imperfectly, but he does it perfectly. So, so the goal here is to produce obedience and devotion to our God. The second thing discipline produces is it produces a trust in God's goodness towards you. And I think, I think we know this, you know, the phrase, God is good all the time. I'll say it first. God is good and all the time. See, we say that. We, we know the mantra. Do we believe it? Do we believe it when we have brain cancer and my brain is dying? And the other people in this room, breast cancer and all sorts of different ailments we have. Do we, do we believe it in the midst of pain that God is good to me? There has to be a deep, deep belief that God wants my good because at his core, he is good. It's something you tell yourself all the time, not to convince you of what's not true, but to renew your minds, as Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2, renew your minds with truth because my mind is filled with a bunch of baloney that's not true about me, about you, and about him. Let's look at verses 11 to 16. Take care. There's that strong word shamar again. Pay special attention. Put your mind to this. Lest you forget Yahweh your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied, all that you have is multiplied, then your heart will be lifted up. And then you forget Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery who led you through the great terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, here it comes, who fed you in the wilderness with manna your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you, read it with me, to do you good in the end. There is what we must believe about who God is. My struggles today in pain, if I'm really in his hand and nothing can take me out of his hand, will do me good in the end. Sometimes I can't imagine how that is. I've mentioned to you this before. One of the sticking points in my life is my sister's suicide. And how does that bring good, God? And that's why I want to go, that's a bunch of baloney. But I have to believe the truth over the circumstance and not allow my circumstances to define who God is, but allow who I know who God is from his word inform my circumstance. And when it doesn't answer the questions, I say, but I trust you. Do you get that? Yes. It is at the heart of living every day. Third one, the reason God disciplines us is to remind us that everything good in our lives comes from him. Verses 17 and 18. Beware lest you stay in your hearts. My power and the might of my hand has gotten me this wealth. You shall remember Yahweh your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. Part of the covenant that God made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob then confirmed in what's called the Mosaic Covenant, where God used Moses to bring the law, is that if you obey me, I'm going to bring you into this land, and I'm going to materially bless your socks off. You are going to be so wealthy, 
is so abundant in everything. But remember, you didn't do it. I did it. Now, did Israel wake up in the morning and go out? Oh, the crops are all there, all by themselves. They just grew overnight. No, they had to go out and put their hand to the plow and they had to do hard work. But God blessed it and, and made them prosperous until they forgot it was him who makes them prosperous and they turned to worship other gods. Then God would bring famines, God would bring other things to say, hey, come on back. A little more secure, severe, severe than that. I think we're the same way. I really do. You know, we, we live, we say this all the time. Aren't you blessed to live here? Aren't you blessed to have eight feet of snow in your front yard today? <laughs> Would you rather live in Winnemucca? I've lived there. I'm sorry if you're from Winnemucca. Every time I do that, I get in trouble. Listen to James. Do not be deceived. This is James 1.16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Why would he say that? Why did he start off with don't be deceived? Because I am easily deceived. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. That's a beautiful terminology. I'll read the next verse in a moment. The Father above, with whom there is no variation or shadow of change. So as I'm standing here, if we were outside and the sun was moving from the east to the west, am I right? Close enough? Is it do what would happen to my shadow? It would go from here to no shadow to there. What this is saying is God doesn't change. There is no movement in who God is, so there is no shadow. God never changes. Is God good? Yes. All the time. And all the time? Is God holy? Yes. And righteous and just and merciful and graceful? All those things he is all the time. He never changes. So we can depend upon him. And so, so this is the idea that every good gift and perfect gift comes from above with a God who never changes. 18, of his own will, his plan, he, he brought us forth by the word of truth and that would be in the larger context, the gospel that was presented to you, the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So James is the first generation of coming to faith. And they're the first fruits of now we, 2,000 years later, are multiple fruits later, multiple harvests later of God's goodness. And everything you have that you call good, everything you have that is good, sometimes we call things good that aren't good. Everything you have that is good comes from his hand. Then what will you say? But I worked hard for it. And did you? Some things they give to me I just land in my lap. Honestly. Like my wife. She's a gift from God to me. But, sorry, I don't mean to embarrass you, Teresa, sorry. Some things I have to work hard for. But bring it back to Deuteronomy, it's that God blessed the work of their hands. And he put us in a land whether Israel in the promised land or us in the United States, that hard work pays off. But still, he should get the praise. And I say, wait a minute, I, I did that. And I suggest to you, if pride kicks up and we start saying, I did that, not God, watch out. His 
humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and what does he do? Exalts you. What if you don't humble yourself under the mighty hand of God? The mighty hand of God humbles you. And maybe he takes everything away that you think you did. I don't know. But let's remember that. It circles us back to humility. That's the purpose of God's testing. Let me remind you of them again. God tests us to produce obedience and devotion to him, to produce trust in God's goodness towards us. He's always good to us, even when we feel pain, and to remind us that everything good in our lives comes from him. So when I say, is God the same today, yesterday, and forever, the Old Testament God the same as the New Testament God, does God discipline us today? Okay. I have uh, people who tell me that God would never bring pain into your life. And, and, and I, I'm always careful to jump back and argue, even though I like to argue. Here's what I know. God has a goal for you. And I say this all the time, you're probably sick of it. It's not just to forgive you and take you to heaven. That's part of it. It is to make you like his son. And there's some things in me that need scouring off because I'm holding on to them that are not like Jesus. And God will do whatever it takes to make me like his son. Let's look at how Hebrews describes that. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3. It's a long passage, but we'll end on this. Consider him who endured, this is consider Christ, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Book of Hebrews is written to Jewish people who have believed in Jesus. But they're receiving so much persecution from their fellow Jews that they're considering abandoning Jesus because it's just so much pain to follow Jesus. And so he's saying to them, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your suffering. In your struggles against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Jesus did. That's his point. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? So he quotes an Old Testament passage here. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. This comes from Proverbs chapter 3. Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. And, and ladies, it's not excluding you. It's using male heirship terminology. Sons were the heirs. The New Testament comes, everyone who believes in Jesus, men and women are heirs. He disciplines everyone who belongs to him, who is a child of his, a daughter or a son. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons and daughters. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. And how many of you would say your parents overdid it? Really? Two of us? How many of you, this is more personal. How many of you might say, I did it over, as a parent, I overdid it. I tell you, I did. I, I remember losing my temper once, and off comes the bell, and I'm charging down the hallway at my kids, and I saw on their face a terror that should not be seen when they look at their father. 
and it stopped me in my tracks. I wasn't coming down to spank them because they needed it. I was coming down because it would bring me relief from these little snots. <laughs> and it changed the entire way I, I disciplined my children from that day forward. Discipline is not about my relief and anger. It is about what do my children need to produce what we're going to read now. And I went overboard, and God had to show me that. Verse 12, for they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our, he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. That's the book of Hebrews way of talking about Paul's terminology of becoming like Christ. Paul says you're being made into the image of his son. Hebrews talks about sharing God's holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Do you want the holiness of God as your character? Do you want to be trained to have the peaceful fruit of righteousness? Then we should love the discipline of the Lord. What does it look like? What are examples in the New Testament of this? And I, I was thinking through it. Maybe you could help me with it. I am, um, I think of some stark stories like Ananias and Sapphira, Acts chapter 5, who lied to get glory for themselves. What happened to them? They fell over dead. Now in the story, there's, they are part of the community of faith. We can't say, well, they're not Christians. I don't really know, but the story doesn't say they're not. They're part of the community of faith, and they took glory from God. And God says, let me show you how I think of that. I'm not suggesting they went to hell. Some things are beyond me. But that's an extreme one. Does he do that kind of stuff today? Um, 1 Corinthians 11 on communion. We're going to take communion in just a moment. And the Corinthians were... Were um, called the love feast. With their communion, they had a huge meal called the love feast. And people would come before everyone arrived and they would eat all the food and pig out. They'd drink all the wine and get drunk. They didn't use grape juice and they used wine. And Paul says, shall I praise you on this? No, I won't praise you on this. What you're doing is evil. You're not, you're not thinking right about what that means, the body and the blood of the Lord. You're not thinking right about the people called the body of Christ. And he, here's what he says. Be, and this is I, com, I, I give to you today because we're going to take communion in a moment. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now, Without discerning the body could be without discerning your physical body and the passions that you give into or without discerning the body of Christ and how you're treating other people. Both fit the context. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we will not be judged. So when in selfishness I live my life in a manner that disregards you, in fact, maybe even hurts you, which is what the Corinthians, some Corinthians were doing. God says, here's the consequences. Illness, weakness, and some of you need to be taken out. That is harsh. Does God have a right 
to take his children home when he wants. Do you really believe that? And that is a hard thing to come to grips. Hard thing to grasp, hard thing to come to grips, whatever the metaphor is. Let me read you Galatians 6, 7 through 10. Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Why? Because sometimes we are easily deceived. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. And the one who sows to the spirit and from the spirit reaps eternal life. Let us not grow weary in doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. This is, again, the opposite of humility, where I serve you. The opposite is, you should serve me. Do you know how important I am? I'm the pastor of this church. And then Wendy laughs at me, as you all should, if I ever said that. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. God has put a principle in his universe that he runs that you reap what you sow. If you abuse your body with chemicals or something else, what happens? Your body's deeply affected by it. If you cheat on your spouse, what happens? Great trouble is ahead for you because you reap what you sow. This is the principle God puts in his universe. And it's not that God went away and he stepped back and said, oh, I put a principle. Let's see how it works out. God is deeply involved in his family, his people, his universe. Do not be mocked. God will not be deceived. We will reap what we sow in this life. So I believe it's everywhere. The last place it talks about God bringing discipline is the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verse 19, to the church of Laodicea. Laodicea had gone apostate. Nothing good was said about them. And Jesus says these words, to those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. That is the whole goal of our spending time here in the wilderness wanderings. Is, is if you've been here a while, you know how much we talk about the fact that you are God's image bearers. And that he loves you and he sent his son to rescue his image bearers from hell and death. That's how much he adores you. That's why he created you. That's why he came to you. So, so I want to preach about the fact to God you have great value. To God you have great value. That's why he came to rescue you. But then to turn around and say to receive the benefit and, and metaphorically throw it back in his face, I'll live like I want. He says, no, you won't. You're mine. And I have a goal for you. Because of my great love for you, my goal for you is to conform your heart, your mind, your motive, your actions to look like my son. Because I want him to be the firstborn of many brothers and sisters. So I'm going to save a whole bunch. That's Romans 8, 29, by the way. I'm going to save a whole bunch of people, make them like my son so he gets honor and glory from all of you. And it's because I love you and I'm going to get you there. And if we take the attitude of the Laodiceans, I'll reprove you and discipline you. If you don't want that, be zealous and repent. So it's kind of a, a stark place to leave this. But as we take communion, we do this weekly during this series to remind us of what God did 
to redeem us. And I want to pray now. And what's going to happen is after I pray, I want you to come forward. The worship team is going to come back up. And I want you to come forward, get the elements, and go back to your seats. There's two tables here and two tables in the back. And get the elements. And, and as Micah is playing a song for you that he's picked for this occasion, I want you to think about your walk with the Lord. Not in the sense of, oh, I'm a horrible person, but in the sense of, God, if I have turned away from you, if, if I'm doing things that aren't consistent with what it means to be your child, I repent of them now. And if you say, you know what? I've been walking well, because it's possible to walk well. Thank him, because he's the one who gave you the power to do it. Then we'll, after that song, we'll participate in communion together. Does that make sense? If you call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, you are welcome to the table. This church practices open communion. Just remember to examine yourself before we partake today. Father, thank you for the privilege of being your children. Thank you for the knowledge that you went to great lengths to redeem your image bearers who had turned their backs on you. You've turned us around to see your glory, to see the beauty of your son. You've opened our hearts to respond to the gospel. It's all your work and we thank you for that. So today, Lord, I hope so far you've been honored by this service and during this communion time, God, talk to us, convict us, encourage us, whatever we need to hear from you now before we remember what your son did through us through the bread and the cup. We love you. In Christ's name, amen. So come get the elements.